0: Very much, Andrew. Amen. Lives. Amen. Andrew Sandlin. I'm not going to tell the details. Okay. There are a lot of reasons that I love coming to this church and preaching. I love. You folks, your pastor and the other elders have been coming for so long now that it really does feel like a homecoming. I think about any time that Ron invited me, I would come. I'd love to be here. But I believe the reason I most love to be here is because the Spirit of God is at work here. And there's an enthusiasm for the things of God, for Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, there's an enthusiasm for the word of God. It is evident that God's hand is here. Nothing can replace that. Oh, I've been in churches before that are cold, and diffident, and uncaring, feels as though you could ice skate through the church. (laughs) Boy, I want to get out of those churches as quickly as I can. You ought to thank God that this is a place where God's at work, where there's a godly, holy enthusiasm. You have a pastor that stands in the pulpit and other elders and leaders, men of God and women of God, who care deeply for the things of the Lord and are enthusiastic about the things of the Lord. So that's a long way of saying it's great to be here. I hope you brought your Bibles today. This is a Bible-believing church. If it ever becomes a church that's not Bible-believing, you need to padlock those doors and get a real job for a living because this is the infallible Word of God. And this governs the church. Let's turn in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, let's say, Translated into English for us, of course, to 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. Now, you probably know of a verse there. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read also the verses around it. 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 22. 2 Chronicles 7, 11 through 22. Now, here's what I'm going to do. One final time, I'm going to have you stand. I'd like you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. That is often what happened in the Old Testament when the Word of God was read. Now, you don't have to do that. It's not sinful if you don't. But often when the Word of God was read, the people of God would stand. Verse 11, I'm going to read verses 11 through 22. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came into Solomon's heart. To make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. He prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shall observe my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be a ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have said before you, and shall go and serve other gods, and worship them. Then I will pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them, and this house, which I have sanctified for my name. And I will cast out of my sight, and will make it to be a proverb, and a byword among all nations. And this house, which is high, shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it. So shalt So that he shall say, why hath the Lord done this unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have a book in my library, it is titled Political Sermons of the American Founding. Political Sermons of the American Founding, it's about that thick, about 1,500 pages, little small text like that. No, I haven't read it straight through, nobody else has either probably. But it carries in it a number of sermons that were preached at about the time of the founding of our nation. And they are all political sermons, all of them. And a number of them are election day sermons preached on or near the time of elections. This is a part of our history, our heritage. Back when our nation, as it began and soon afterwards, was much more of a righteous nation. Yet we have preachers today that wouldn't even preach such a message. I say preachers need to steer clear of politics. What they're really saying is we need to steer steer clear of the word of God. Because the word of God addresses what we call political issues. So today, I'm going to preach from this passage, an election day sermon. In case you hadn't heard, there is an election Tuesday. Now, I realize some of you may not have aware of that. The news has only been breaking in the last few days that there is an election. You would not have known it earlier. Seriously, we are in what is certainly the most bizarre national election in my lifetime. I'm going to preach from this passage on a godly political dream. A godly political dream. If you read 2 Chronicles chapters 5 and 6, you'll read about the dedication of the temple. Solomon's dedication of this temple. David wanted to build it. God said, no, you're a man of war, but your son can build it. And so read of this in chapters 5 and 6. Oh, what a glorious... Narrative it is. All sorts of sacrifices were killed in honor to the Lord. And all sorts of wonderful pomp and ceremony. And the Bible says to Solomon built a very large platform. You can imagine the beauty and the gold of this glorious temple as it's completely filled. All of the glorious stones, and people look at it in awe. This is the place where God will come down to dwell. And Solomon gets on his knees, the king. Now, the king gets on his knees on this platform and holds up his hands to God and dedicates and gives honor to the great God of heaven and earth. Now, I would say that's a pretty dramatic day. And he goes home and he goes to sleep and essentially God comes to him and in a dream, God says, Solomon, I just want to let you know, I'm answering your prayer. And these verses that we read are an account of what God said to Solomon. I want us to note some very key elements in this passage, just three main ones that our nation needs to know on the basis of what was said about Israel. And If there was ever a time when a nation... That did at one time know the word of God. Needs to hear the word of God. It's our nation now. I'm not even an old man. Ron's a very old man. (laughs) What I love about Ron is he's young at heart. But even in my lifetime. And those of you know what I'm talking about. Things were by no means perfect in my youth. There were still plenty of sins. Plenty of problems. Terrible seeds sown. But even in my lifetime. I'm amazed at the escalation of apostasy in our nation and evil. Just in the last five or ten years. It's truly remarkable. Does the word of God have something to say about that? Yeah. It just doesn't say things about you and me dying and going to heaven. The Bible says very little about that, actually. Almost nothing. It tells us as a people how to live. And it speaks also to sinners and to nations. And not just churches and families. Now the first thing I want you to notice from this passage is the necessity of godly nations. Now Israel, to be sure, was unique. He says there, if my people, and God is talking about Israel as a nation, and Israel was unique as a nation, God made a specific unique covenant with Israel unlike any other nation. And he said that, didn't he? He said, unlike any other nation, I have chosen you and exalted you. Now, he loved the other nations and cares for all, but he specifically chose Israel to be his covenant people. So, no nation, not even the United States, is identical to ancient Israel. Even some of our fathers of our nation misunderstood. They thought Israel as a nation or the U.S. as a nation, rather, is the new Israel. That's not quite correct. The people of God are the new Israel. Having said that, however, having said that, there can and there should and there must be godly nations. The fact that we're not identical to Israel doesn't mean that nations are not called to be godly nations and submit to God and Jesus Christ. They are. Oh, listen to Proverbs thirteen thirty four. Listen to this passage. Proverbs, universal wisdom book. Given not just to Israel, but the book of Proverbs. Universal wisdom to anybody at any time. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin as a reproach to... Can you finish it? Any, any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin as a reproach to any people. You want a nation that's a truly exalted nation? Be a righteous nation. Would you like to know in the 19th century why God exalted England? It wasn't perfect, but under Queen Victoria, it's dressed to a large degree again, not perfectly righteousness. They sent missionaries all over the world and the empire, the British Empire, the sun didn't set anywhere on the British Empire. United States founded by Christian. Men, or at least men, heavily influenced by the Christian faith. Grew and grew and grew. And has had massive influence. Not a perfect nation. No nation ever has been. But nonetheless, righteous. Now, we live in an individualistic age. You know what I mean by that. The important thing is what I want. And now that we all have... Smartphones, or some of you might have the old dumb phones. (laughs) Now that we have smartphones, you can even create your own, don't you love this language, personalized playlist. And I do, when I'm traveling. So, you know, there are a lot of, about 35 songs here. I got to drive all the way from California to see Ron Smith. I'm going to put a lot of songs in there and I plug them into my car and I listen to them. And I don't put any songs on there that I don't want to put. I only put songs I want to. It's my own Andrew's personalized playlist, right? (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with the idea that you can personalize everything. By the way, here's something wonderful in this individualistic age. There's something wonderful about the church of Jesus Christ. You know what it is? You all came in here today. And you didn't listen to your personalized playlist. The gentleman over here playing, isn't he the one that selected the music? It wasn't his personalized playlist. You all sang the same songs. And you all read the same scripture. You didn't say when one of the men got up, you didn't say, well, I don't like him reading that. I'm going to read my own scripture. You didn't say that. We all read the same one. And we all said the same creed. And we're all listening to the same message. There's a powerful truth in that. That we don't live only for ourselves. Or only for our own purposes. But for the people of God. And so sometimes we think, yes, God judges individuals. I understand that. But I would submit to you that in the Bible, God judges not just individuals. He judges families. He judges churches. He judges businesses, He judges schools, and God judges nations. The Bible's very clear about that. God judges nations. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter 25 that one day all the nations, not just individuals, will come before the Lord. You know what text I'm talking about? And He will separate the sheep nations from the goat nations. Well, I don't know if that's very fair. I mean, shouldn't every individual be judged? Yes, the Bible says that too. But the God also will judge nations as nations. My, ah, As I think about it, I tremble. What will he say about the United States? Where will we be? I pray that in the great time of reformation coming, that our nation will be a part of that yes. great reformation. Not just individuals, not just Church of the King, but our nation will be a part of that great reformation and that great revival. More importantly, I want you to listen to this amazing text from Isaiah chapter 19. You can turn if you'd like, but just listen right now to this remarkable text, Isaiah 19, the last four verses. I said earlier that Israel is a unique nation, and that's true. But notice what God has prophesied to do. In the future. Isaiah is of course prophesying. Speaking of what is future. And the Lord. Notice verse 19. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And worship with sacrifice and offering. You can imagine what Israel would have thought. At the time where had their forefathers suffered so mercilessly? Where had they suffered? And notice what God is saying. One day, he says, they will come and worship me, these Egyptians. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Isn't that remarkable? And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, communicating with one another. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians, though they were at war at the time, coming together. In that day Israel, now here it is, in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. That is a remarkable verse. It says God is going to draw the nations, the nations that turn to him, that repent. And they will be on the same footing with the people of God. On the same footing. I pray that's true of the United States. There's a second thing I want us to notice. Not only the imperative of godly nations, but also the importance, the necessity of godly rulers. We would say godly politicians. Notice, please, there in chapter 7, chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, did you notice verses 17 and 18? As for thee, if you've walked before me as David, your father, walked, and notice he says, do according to all that I have commanded thee. And shall observe my statutes and judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. Now, know this God desires godly, law keeping political rulers. God desires that. That's a good thing. See, well, Andrew, I, I just thought that, I mean, God wants pastors. He does. And God wants school teachers and God wants missionaries and he will raise them up and use them to bring a great revival and a reformation. Yes, that's true, but, but, but that's also true of godly political rulers. God desires for them. No, let me change that. God demands of them that they rule according to his statutes and according to his law. He rewards godly rulers, but he also punishes ungodly rulers. i like to read from, and this is a text you probably know, from Psalm 2. You might want to turn there if it's close by, or you can just listen. Psalm 2. It speaks essentially, well, it's so good. Here, let me just, I'm going to, it's not long. I'm going to go over there because this is, this is actually an election sermon. So let's just get right into it. Let's go to Psalm 2. And I want you to see the message to ungodly political rulers. <clears throat> it's remarkable. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Here it is, the political rulers. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together saying... Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That is allegiance to the Lord and to his law. Let's break away his holy law. Let's break away allegiance to him. Notice what verse 4 says. He that sitteth in the heavens shall tremble, saying, what will I do? No, your translation had better not say that. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them unto them in his wrath, and vexed them in his sore displeasure. And then he says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Talking immediately about a godly Jewish king, but ultimately talking about the true king, Jesus Christ. We know this from verse 7. I will declare the decree, the Lord, Yahweh, said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You want to know I believe, why your pastor believes in a great coming revival because of texts like those. The Father says, you ask, pray to me. Isn't that wonderful? He says to Jesus, pray to the Father. And if you pray and only ask, I will give all of these nations to you for an inheritance. Truly remarkable. But notice verse 9, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun. In the ancient Near East, that would mean show obeisance to him or reverence to him. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are of all they that put their trust in him. Truly remarkable passage of God's judgment on those rulers that turn away from the true God. Uh, The call to a civil magistrate to be a civil magistrate as a Christian is a very high calling. I posted this not too long ago, but I want to read this quote. It's so powerful. It's one of the most powerful that I've ever read on this particular topic. This is a quote from the final chapter of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion in which he is talking about the calling of a politician, a Christian politician or civil magistrate. I want you to listen to this. Calvin writing, for he, Paul, says, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. That rulers are the ministers of God. Not a terror to good works, but to the evil. To this, Calvin writes, may add we may add the examples of saints. Some of whom held the offices of kings, as David, Josiah, and Hezekiah. Others of governors, as Joseph. And Daniel, others of civil magistrates among a free people, as Moses, Joshua, and the judges. Their functions were expressly approved by the Lord. Wherefore, no man can doubt that civil authority is, in the sight of God, not only sacred and lawful, but the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all stations in mortal life. That's an extraordinary statement. I don't know of anybody in the history of the church that said it so powerfully. As this man did. And he backed it up with scripture. What a high and great calling it is. Not just to be a preacher of the word. Thank God for that. Thank God he called me to that. But to be a Christian civil magistrate. To rule in the fear of the Lord. And I would encourage some of you. Maybe some of you here. Maybe some some of you younger men or even younger women. Maybe God is calling you will call you one day to serve on a city council, to run as a state representative, to serve as a sheriff, to run in Congress, to run for Congress or the Senate. You say, well, that's, I mean, I guess that's okay. Somebody's had to do it. I'd rather have a Christian do it than a non-Christian or a Muslim. No, it's not just that somebody has to do it. This is a high and noble and a Christian calling. And if you would like to know one reason, one reason that our nation has descended to such depravity is because we have not emphasized in the last 50 or 60 years the importance of godly, civil, Christian magistrates putting those people into office that fear the Lord, that want to submit to His law. Maybe God is calling you then finally, I've talked about godly nations and godly rulers. I would finally like to talk about godly laws. You notice then as I read just a couple of minutes ago in verse 17 about godly rulers. How specifically that Solomon was to rule. He says, verse 17, God says to Solomon in the dream, and do according." to all that I have commanded thee, and thou shalt observe my statutes and my judgments. Now when God says that, here's what he means. He means the written law of God. That's exactly what he means. He doesn't mean so-called natural law. Now God has revealed himself in nature. Everywhere in nature we see God. But he never invites us to create a law or a system of ethics specifically excluding the Bible. Never. You say, well, Andrew, the problem with that is there are a lot of people that would, they would believe in a sort of vague law system that would be based on the regularity of nature, but when you start bringing the Bible out, they get nervous. Yeah, they get nervous because they're sinful. And the law of God written in the Word of God speaks very specifically to concrete situations. There's no wiggle room. It tells us how we must live our lives in all areas of life, including in the realm of the state. That moral law of God in the Bible binds in perpetuity. Yes, the sacrificial system of the old covenant era has been set aside. The laws of diet... I've been set aside. Those laws unique to Israel as an ethnic people, separated from the people of the time, yes, that was set aside. The New Testament's clear about that. The sheep coming down to Peter, you can eat this. Specific judicial laws about the land, you have to kill this particular people and that. Obviously, that related only to the Jews fighting, for instance, the Philistines and others at the time. But the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, The case laws that summarize those, or summarized by the Ten Commandments, those have never been set aside. And they bind all nations. And our founders understood this. Underlying all of our law and all of our law system has to be the written law of God in the Bible. Because you understand that God will judge us and God will judge our rulers if we turn our backs on his law. We will judge us. And everybody who says, no, the law of God, Andrew, was given only to Israel. It wasn't really given to the Gentiles. It wasn't given to Gentiles nations, Gentile nations. I wish they would sit down and read the book of Isaiah. How many here have ever read the book of Isaiah? I, mean, well, all right. I would encourage you. It is in the Bible. You're allowed to read it. A glorious book. You're reading along in the first 12 chapters, and God is speaking to Judah through Isaiah, and he says to Judah, You have broken my laws, and it's a tragedy. You've turned to idols, you have oppressed the poor. He says in one powerful passage, You have called evil good and good evil. Doesn't that sound like today? Amen. All that is good and righteous. The holiness of a a marriage, a man and a woman and children. People say that's oppressive. But you know what is really good is a marriage of two men or two women. Gay marriage or lesbians. That is good. But this other patriarchal historic marriage is evil. That that is an utter perversion. That is probably even more perverted than the perverted sex sex act itself. To call evil good and good evil is an utter perversion perversion. And that's exactly that kind of thing is what the Jews were doing. And so you're reading along through the first 12 chapters. Yes, it's a terrible thing. And God says, I'll level my judgment on you because you violated my law. And then you get to chapter 13. Does anybody know where I'm going? And then he says, oh, in the next few chapters, he takes up the word against Babylon and against Moab and against Damascus and against Egypt And he says, and oh, by the way, you too have broken my holy law. You too have broken my moral law. You too stand under my judgment. The same moral law. The same judgment. God judged Israel and God will judge the United States. For turning our back upon him. And on his moral law. Some people say... God will soon judge America if she doesn't repent. I'm sure that's true, but I'd like to add something to that. If you read Romans chapter 1, you find something very fascinating. There God is speaking of the pagan Gentile nations that have turned their backs on God. And he says, because they have worshipped the creation rather than the creator, because they've become idolaters... Because they knew me by looking at natural revelation. And nonetheless, could have known more and didn't. But abandoned me. Because of that, I sent my judgment. I turned them over to homosexuality and lesbianism. That's what he, read it in Romans 1. Now think about this with me. He didn't say if you commit and permit homosexuality and lesbianism, I will bring judgment. He says the homosexuality and lesbianism is the judgment. And when you have a nation, and I don't mean the mere act of it. I mean, ever since the fall, we've had to some degree or another that specific sin. I mean the pervasiveness of it, the acceptance of it, the approval of it, the codifying of it as being a marriage. That itself is an aspect of God's judgment. Amen. And a nation in which the suffering under that God's judgment desperately needs repentance. Desperately needs Repentance. It is in that context, as I come to a conclusion, in that context, then that we can read verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. By the way, I love the the various aspects of that humble yourself before God and pray and notice also turn from their wicked ways my friends there is no forgiveness without repentance and obedience all the prayers in the world mean nothing if you just continue sinning i want to read to you a truly remarkable statement During a very dark time in our nation's history, during, in fact, the, <clears throat> the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln, who was by almost no accounts a Christian, but who was in many ways a basic God-fearing man, who was at least influenced by Christianity, called a national Day of Prayer and Fasting for March 30th, 1863. I want you to listen to this as we conclude. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men, Lincoln wrote, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And in so much as we know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear That the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people? We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, as no nation ever has grown, Lincoln said. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient, To feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power. To confess our national sins. And to pray for clemency and forgiveness. That's a remarkable statement. Now, would you like to know why there's not revival and reformation in America? Here's one main reason. Barack Obama... Or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton would never stand up and recommend that. Never. And until one of them, or a president, or even a governor does, we're unlikely to have a full social, national reformation. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 7 says that. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves, as Lincoln said, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will heal their land. If there is to be a truly great America, one of the candidates said, and it's understandable, vote for me, make America great again. Well, let me tell you something. I know how to make America great again. And it's to submit to and love and obey the word of God. And there is no other way. That is the way. May God bless you as you vote on Tuesday. Vote to spare the lives of little unborn children. Vote to protect the family, and by that I mean a man and a woman, and as God gives them a child or children, that is a family. Vote such that the state cannot steal money through confiscatory taxation. Vote so that... Public officials are held accountable to objective standards based on the word of God. Vote that way, whether it's politicians or policies, propositions, vote that way. Remember this, when you walk in that voting booth on Tuesday, you don't take off your Christian hat before you go into the voting booth. If you can't be a Christian and go somewhere, don't go there. You go only where you can act as a Christian. And may God send true revival and true reformation to America. Let us pray. Our Father, our hearts are heavy for the state of our nation. Because we, like Israel of old, have turned our back on you. And if Lincoln who is not, as far as we know, O God, you alone know, a Christian, nonetheless recognize the truth of your word, that the great civil war was an act of your chastisement because of the sins of the nation. We can only imagine what you think about our nation today. We ask, O God, you would spare our nation even greater judgment, but only, O God, in your way. We don't pray a sentimental prayer to keep us from hard times. We pray, O God, that you would bring this nation to great repentance. That you would change this nation, O God, such that you would avert your judgment. And Lord, begin with us. Thank you for a church and a pastor who speak your truth, the gospel, and the law without fear or favor. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our great Lord, and the King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name alone we pray, amen.